Getting right into it. <clears throat> Chapter 7. The Diamond Mines Again. When Sarah entered the holly hung classroom in the afternoon, she did so as the head of a sort of procession. Miss Minchin, in her grandest silk dress, led her by the hand. A manservant followed, carrying the box containing the last door. A housemaid carried a second box, and Becky brought up the rear, carrying a third and wearing a clean apron and a new cap. Sarah would have much preferred to enter in the usual way, but Miss Minchin had sent for her, and after an interview in her private sitting-room had expressed her wishes. "'This is not an ordinary occasion,' she said. "'I do not desire that it should be treated as one.' So Sarah was led grandly in, and felt shy when, on her entry, the big girls stared at her and touched each other's elbows, and the little ones began to squirm joyously in their seats. "'Silence, young ladies!' said Miss Minchin at the murmur which arose. "'James, place the box on the table and remove the lid. Emma, put yours on the chair. "'Becky!' she said suddenly and severely. Becky had quite forgotten herself in the excitement, and was grinning at Lottie, who was wriggling with rapturous expectation. She almost dropped her box.' The disapproving voice so startled her, and her frightened, bobbing curtsy of an apology was so funny that Lavinia and Jessie tittered. "'It is not your place to look at the young ladies,' said Miss Minchin. "'You forget yourself. Put your box down.' Becky obeyed with an alarmed haste and hastily backed toward the door. "'You may leave us,' said Miss Minchin. She announced it to the servants with a wave of her hand. Becky stepped aside respectfully to allow the superior servants to pass first. She could not help casting a longing glance at the box on the table. Something made of blue satin was peeping from between the folds of tissue paper. "'If you please, Miss Minchin,' said Sarah suddenly, "'mayn't Becky stay?' It was a bold thing to do. Miss Minchin was betrayed into something like a slight jump. Then she put her eyeglass up and gazed at her show pupil disturbedly. Becky! she exclaimed. My dearest Sarah! Sarah advanced a step toward her. I want her because I know she will like to see the presents, she explained. She is a little girl too, you know. Miss Minchin was scandalized. She glanced from one figure to the other. My dear Sarah, she said, Becky is a scullery maid. Scullery maids are not little girls. It really had not occurred to her to think of them in that light. Scullery maids were machines who carried coal scuttles and made fires. But Becky is, said Sarah, and I know she would enjoy herself. Please let her stay, because it is my birthday. Miss Minchin replied with much dignity. As you ask, it has a birthday favour. She may stay. <laughs> Rebecca, thank Miss Sarah for her great kindness. Becky had been backing into the corner, twisting the hem of her apron in delighted suspense. She came forward, bobbing curtsies, but between Sarah's eyes and her own there passed a gleam of friendly understanding, while her words tumbled out over each other. 
Oh, if you please, miss, I'm that grateful, miss. I did want to see the door, miss, that I did. Thank you, miss, and thank you, mum. Turning and making an alarmed bob to Miss Minchin for letting me take the liberty. Miss Minchin waved a hand again. This time it was in the direction of the corner near the door. Go and stand there, she commanded, not to hear the young ladies. Becky went to her place, grinning. She did not care where she went, so that she might have the luck of being inside the room instead of being downstairs in the scullery. While these delights were going on, she did not even mind when Miss Minchin cleared her throat ominously and spoke again. Now, young ladies, I have a few words to say to you, she announced. She's going to make a speech, whispered one of the girls. I wish we'd over. Sarah felt rather uncomfortable. As this was her party, it was probable that the speech was about her. It is not agreeable to stand in a schoolroom and have a speech made about you. You are aware, young ladies, the speech began, for it was a speech, that dear Sarah is eleven years old today. Dear Sarah, murmured Lavinia, several of you here have also been eleven years old. But Sarah's birthday is rather different from other little girls' birthdays. When she is older, she will be heiress to a large fortune, which it will be her duty to spend in a meritorious manner. The time and minds, <laughs> giggled Jessie in a whisper. Sarah did not hear her, but as she stood with her green-grey eyes fixed steadily on Miss Minchin, she felt herself growing rather hot. When Miss Minchin talked about money, she felt somehow that she always hated her, and of course, it was disrespectful to hate grown-up people. When her dear papa, Captain Crewe, brought her from India and gave her into my care, the speech proceeded, he said to me in a jesting way, I am afraid she will be very rich, Miss Minchin. And my reply was, her education at my seminary, Captain Crewe, shall be such as will adorn the largest fortune. Sarah has become my most accomplished pupil. Her French and her dancing are a credit to the seminary. Her manners, which have caused you all to call her Princess Sarah, are perfect. Her amiability she exhibits by giving you this afternoon's party. I hope you appreciate her generosity. I wish you to express your appreciation of it by saying all aloud together, Thank you, Sarah. The entire schoolroom rose to its feet as it had done the morning Sarah remembered so well. Thank you, Sarah, it said. And it must be confessed that Lottie jumped up and down. Sarah looked rather shy for a moment. She made a curtsy, and it was a very nice one. Thank you, she said, for coming to my party. Very pretty, indeed, Sarah, approved Miss Minchin. That is what a real princess does when the populace applauds her. Lavinia, scathingly, the sound you just made was extremely like a snort. If you are jealous of your fellow pupil, I beg you will express your feelings in some more ladylike manner. Now... I will leave you to enjoy yourselves. The instant she had swept out of the room, the spell her presence always had upon them was broken. 
The little girls jumped or tumbled out of theirs. The older ones wasted no time in deserting their seats. There was a rush towards the boxes. Sarah had bent over one of them with a delighted face. These are books, I know, she said. The little children broke into a ruthful murmur, and Ermengarde looked aghast. Does your papa send you books for your birthday present? she exclaims. Why, he's as big as mine. Don't open them, Sarah. I like them, Sarah laughed, but she turned to the biggest box. When she took out the last doll, it was so magnificent that the children uttered delighted groans of joy and actually drew back to gaze at it in breathless rapture. She's almost as big as Lottie, someone gasped. Lottie clapped her hands and danced about, giggling. She's dressed for the theatre, said Lavinia. Her cloak is lined with ermine. Oh, cried Ermengarde, darting forward. She has an opera glass in her hand, a blue and gold one. Here is her trunk, said Sarah. Let us open it and look at her things. She sat down upon the floor and turned the key. The children crowded, clamouring her, as she lifted tray after tray and revealed their contents. Never had a schoolroom been in such an uproar. There were lace collars and silk stockings and handkerchiefs. There was a jewel case containing a necklace and a tiara, which looked quite as if they were made of real diamonds. There was a long seal skin and a muff. There were ball dresses and walking dresses and visiting dresses. There were hats and tea gowns and fans. Even Lavinia and Jessie forgot that they were too elderly to care for dolls and uttered exclamations of delight and caught up things to look at them. Suppose, Sarah said as she stood by the table, putting a large black velvet hat on the impassively smiling owner of all these splendours. Suppose she understands human talk and feels proud of being admired. You are always supposing things, said Lavinia, and her air was very superior. I know I am, answered Sarah undisturbedly. I like it. There is nothing so nice as supposing. It's almost like being a fairy. If you suppose anything hard enough, it seems as if it were real. It's all very well to suppose things if you have everything, said Lavinia. Could you suppose and pretend if you were a beggar and lived on a garret? Sarah stopped arranging the last doll's ostrich plumes and looked thoughtful. I believe I could, she said. If one was a beggar, one would have to suppose and pretend all the time. But it mightn't be easy. She often thought afterward how strange it was that just as she had finished saying these things, just at that very moment, Miss Amelia came into the room. Sarah, she said, your papa solicitor, Mr. Borrow, has called to see Miss Minchin and... As she must talk to him alone and the refreshments are laid in her parlour, you had all better come and have your feast now so that my sister can have her interview here in the schoolroom. Refreshments were not likely to be disdained at any hour and many pairs of eyes gleamed. Miss Amelia arranged the procession into decorum and then, with Sarah at her side heading it, she led it away, leaving the last doll sitting upon a chair with the glories of her wardrobe scattered about her.
Dresses and coats hung upon their chair backs, piles of lace frilled petticoats lying upon their seats. Becky, who was not expected to partake of refreshments, had the indiscretion to linger a moment to look at these beauties. It really was an indiscretion. Get back to your work, Becky! Miss Amelia had said, but she had stopped to reverently pick up first a muff and then a coat, and while she stood looking at them adoringly, she heard Miss Minchin upon the threshold, and being smitten with terror at the thought of being accused of taking liberties, she rashly darted under the table which hid her by its tablecloth. Miss Minchin came into the room, accompanied by a sharp-featured dry little gentleman who looked rather disturbed. Miss Minchin herself also looked rather disturbed, it must be admitted, and she gazed at the dry little gentleman with an irritated, puzzled expression. She sat down with stiff dignity and waved him to a chair. "'Pray be seated, Mr. Burrow,' she said. Mr. Burrow did not sit at once. His attention seemed attracted by the last door and the things which surrounded her. He settled his eyeglasses and looked at them in nervous disapproval.' The last doll herself did not seem to mind this in the least. She merely sat upright and returned his gaze indifferently. A hundred pounds, Mr. Bell remarked succinctly. All expensive material and made in a Parisian modistus. He spent money lavishly enough, that young man. Miss Minchin felt offended. This seemed to be a disparagement of a best patron and was a liberty. Even solicitors had no right to take liberties. I beg your pardon, Mr. Barrow, she said stiffly. I do not understand. Birthday presents, said Mr. Barrow in the same critical manner, to a child eleven years old. Mad extravagance, I call it. Miss Minchin drew herself up still more rigidly. Captain Crewe is a man of fortune, she said. The diamond mines alone. Mr. Barrow reeled round upon her. Diamond mines, he broke out. There are none. Never were. Miss Minchin actually got up from her chair. What? she cried. What do you mean? At any rate, answered Mr. Barrow quite snappishly, it would have been much better if there never had been any. Any diamond mines, ejaculated Miss Minchin, catching at the back of a chair and feeling as if a splendid dream was fading away from her. Diamond mines spell ruin oftener than they spell wealth, said Mr. Barrow. When a man is in the hands of a very dear friend and is not a business man himself... He had better steer clear of the dear friend's diamond mines, or gold mines, or any other kind of mines dear friends want to put money into. The late Captain Crewe. Here Miss Minchin stopped him with a gasp. <gasps> the late Captain Crewe? She cried out. The late? You don't come to tell me that Captain Crewe is... Is dead, ma'am, Mr. Barrow answered with jerky brusqueness. Died of jungle fever and business troubles combined. 
The jungle figure might not have killed him if he had been driven mad by his business troubles, and the business troubles might not have put an end to him if the jungle fever had not assisted. Captain Crow is dead. Miss Minchin dropped into her chair again. The words she had spoken filled her with alarm. What were his business troubles? She said, what were they? Diamond mines, answered Mr. Barrow, and dear friends, and ruin. Miss Minchin lost her breath. Ruin, she gasped. Lost every penny. That young man had too much money. The dear friend was mad on the subject of diamond mine. He put all his own money into it, and all Captain Crow's. Then the dear friend ran away. Captain Crow was already stricken with fever when the news came. The shock was too much for him. He died delirious, raving about his little girl, and didn't leave a penny. Now Miss Minchin understood, and never had she received such a blow in her life. Her show pupil, her show patron, swept away from the select seminary at one blow. She felt as if she had been outraged and robbed and that Captain Crewe and Sarah and Mr. Barrow were equally to blame. Do you mean to tell me, she cried out, that he left nothing? That Sarah will have no fortune? That the child is a beggar? That she is left on my hands? A little pauper instead of Veneris? Mr. Barrow was a shrewd businessman, and felt it as well to make his own freedom from responsibility quite clear without any delay. She is certainly left a beggar, he replied, and she is certainly left on your hands, ma'am, as she hasn't a relation in the world that we know of. Miss Minchin started forward. She looked as if she was going to open the door and rush out of the room and stop the festivities going on joyfully and rather noisily that moment over the refreshments. It's monstrous, she said. She's sitting in my room. At this moment, dressed in silk gauze and lace petticoats, giving a party at my expense. She's giving it at your expense, madame, if she's giving it, said Mr. Barrow calmly. Barrow and Skipworth are not responsible for anything. There never was a cleaner sweep made of a man's fortune. Captain Drew died without paying our last bill, and it was a big one. Miss Minchin turned back from the door in increased indignation. This was worse than anyone could have dreamed of its being. This is what has happened to me, she cried. I was always so sure of his payments and I went to all sorts of ridiculous expenses for the child. I paid the bills for that ridiculous jewel and a ridiculous fantastic wardrobe. The child was to have everything she wanted. She has a carriage and a pony and a maid. And I've paid for all of them since the last check came. Mr. Barrow evidently did not intend to remain to listen to the story of Miss Minchin's grievances after he had made the position of his firm clear and related of mere dry facts. He did not feel any particular sympathy for irate keepers of boarding schools. You had better not pay for anything more, madame, he remarked, unless you want to make presents to the young lady. No one will remember you. 
She hasn't a brass farthing to call her own. But what am I to do? demanded Miss Minchin, as if she felt it entirely his duty to make it right. What am I to do? There isn't anything to do, said Mr. Barrow, folding up his eyeglasses and slipping them into his pocket. Captain Crewe is dead. The child has left a pauper. Nobody is responsible for her but you. I am not responsible for her, and I refuse to be made responsible. Miss Minchin became quite white with rage. Mr. Barrow turned to go. I have nothing to do with that, madam, he said uninterestedly. Barrow and Skipworth are not responsible. Very sorry the thing has happened, of course. If you think she is to be foisted off on me, you are greatly mistaken, Miss Minchin gasped. I have been robbed and cheated. I will turn into the street. If she had not been so furious, she would have been too discreet to say so much. She saw herself burdened with an extravagantly brought up child whom she had always resented and she lost all self-control. Mr. Barrow undisturbedly moved toward the door. I wouldn't do that, madam, he commented. It wouldn't look well. Unpleasant story to get bundled up about in connection with the establishment. Pupil bundled about a penny list without friends. He was a clever businessman, and he knew what he was saying. He also knew that Miss Minchin was a businesswoman and would be shrewd enough to see the truth. She could not afford to do a thing which would make people speak of her as a cruel and hard-hearted person. Better keep her and make use of her, he added. She's a clever child, I believe. You can get a good deal out of her as she grows older. I will get a good deal out of her before she grows older, exclaimed Miss Minchin. I'm sure you will, ma'am, said Mr. Burrow, with a little sinister smile. I'm sure you will. Good morning. He bowed himself out and closed the door, and it must be confessed that Miss Minchin stood for a few moments and glared at it. What he had said was quite true. She knew it. She had absolutely no redress. Her show people had melted into nothingness, leaving only friendless, beggared little girl. Such money as she herself had advanced was lost and could not be regained. And as she stood there breathless, under her sense of injury, there fell upon her ears a burst of gay voices from her own sacred room, which had actually been given up to the feast. She could at least stop this. But as she started toward the door, it was opened by Miss Amelia, who, when she caught sight of the changed, angry face, fell back a step in alarm. What is the matter, sister? she ejaculated. Miss Minchin's voice was almost fierce when she answered. Where is Sarah Crewe? Miss Amelia was bewildered. Sarah? she stammered. Why, she's with the children in your room, of course. Has she a black frock in her sumptuous wardrobe? In bitter irony. A black frock? Miss Amelia stammered again. A black one? She has frocks of every other colour. Has she a black one? Miss Amelia began to turn pale. No. Oh, y yes, she said. But it is too short for her. She only has the old black velvet, and she's outgrown it. Go and tell her to take off that 
preposterous pink silk gauze and put the black one on. Whether it is too short or not, she is done with the finery. Then Miss Amelia began to wring her fat hands and cry. Oh, sister! Oh, sister! She sniffed. What can have happened? Miss Minchin wasted no words. Captain Crewe is dead, she said. He has died without a penny. That spoiled, pampered, fanciful child is left a pamper on my hands. Miss Amelia sat down quite heavily in the nearest chair. Hundreds of pounds I have spent on nonsense for her, and I shall never see a penny of it. Put a stop to this ridiculous party of hers. Go and make her change her frock at once. I? panted Miss Amelia. M must I go and tell her now? This moment, was the fierce answer. Don't sit staring like a goose. Go! Poor Miss Amelia was accustomed to being called a goose. She knew, in fact, that she rather was a goose, and that it was left to geese to do many great disagreeable things. It was a somewhat embarrassing thing to go into the midst of a room full of delighted children and tell the giver of the feast that she had suddenly been transformed into a little beggar and must go upstairs and put on an old black frock, which was too small for her. But the thing must be done. This was evidently not the time when questions might be asked. She rubbed her eyes with her handkerchief until they looked quite red. After she got up and went out of the room without venturing to say another word, when her older sister looked and spoke as she had just done now, the wisest course to pursue was to obey orders without any comment. Miss Minchin walked across the room. She spoke to herself aloud without knowing what she was doing. During the last year, the story of the diamond mines had suggested all sorts of possibilities to her. Even proprietors of seminaries might make fortunes and stalks with the aid of owners of mines, and now, instead of looking forward to gains, she was left to look back upon losses. "'Princess Sarah, indeed,' she said. "'The child has been pampered as if she were queen.' She was sweeping angrily past the corner table as she said it, and the next moment she started at the sound of a loud sobbing <laughs> sniff, which issued from under the cover. What was that? she exclaimed angrily. The loud sobbing sniff was heard again, and she stopped and raised the hanging folds of the table cover. How dare you? she cried out. How dare you? Come out immediately! It was poor Becky who crawled out, and her cap was knocked on one side, and her face was red with repressed crying. If you please, Mum, it's me, Mum, she explained. I know I had not to, but I was looking at the door, Mum, and I was frightened when you come in and, and slipped under the table. You have been there all the time listening, said Miss Minchin. No, Mum. Becky protested, bobbing curtsies. Not listening. I thought I could slip out without your noticing, but I couldn't. And I had to stay, but I didn't listen, Mum. I couldn't, wouldn't for nothing, but I, I couldn't help hearing. Suddenly it seemed almost as if she lost all fear of the awful lady before her. She burst into fresh tears. Oh, please, she said. I dare say you'll give me warning, Mum, but... I'm so sorry for poor Sarah. I'm so sorry. Leave the room, ordered Miss Minchin. Becky curtsied again, with the tears openly streaming down her cheeks. Yes, I will, 
she said, trembling. But I, I just wanted to ask you, Miss Sarah, she's been such a rich lady and she's been, she's been waiting it all and, and, and fought hand and what will she do now, Mum? With no mind. If, if, oh please, would you let me wait on her? After I've done my pots and kettles, I do them that quick and you let me wait on her now she's poor. Oh! Breaking out afresh. Poor little Miss Sarah, Mum, that she was called a princess. Somehow, she made Miss Minchin feel more angry than ever that the very scullery maid should range herself on the side of this child, whom she realised more fully than ever that she had never liked, was too much. She actually stamped her foot. No! Certainly not, she said. She will wait on herself and on other people. Leave the room this instant or you'll leave your place. Becky threw her apron over her head and fled. She ran out of the room and down the steps into the scullery. And there she sat down upon her pots and kettles and wept as if her heart would break. It's exactly like the wounds in this story, she wailed. Then poor princess, ones that was driven to the world. Miss Minchin had never looked quite so still and hard as she did when Sarah came to her a few hours later in response to a message she had sent her. Even by that time it seemed to Sarah as if the birthday party had been either a dream or a thing which had happened years ago and had happened to the life of quite another little girl. Every sign of festivities had been swept away. The holly had been removed from the schoolroom walls and the forms and desks put back into their places. Miss Minchin's sitting room looked as it always did. All traces of the feast were gone and Miss Minchin had resumed her usual dress. The pupils had been ordered to lay aside their party frocks and this having been done, had they returned to the schoolroom and huddled together in groups, whispering and talking excitedly. <laughs> Tell Sarah to come to my room, Miss Mitchin had said to her sister, and explain to her clearly that I will have no crying or unpleasant scenes. Sister, replied Miss Amelia, she is the strangest child I ever saw. She has actually made no fuss at all. You remember when she made no when Captain Crewe went back to India. When I told her what had happened, she just stood quite still and looked at me without making a sound. Her eyes seemed to get bigger and bigger and she went pale. When I'd finished, she stood still, staring for a few minutes, and then her chin began to shake and she turned round and ran out of her room upstairs. Several of the other children began to cry, but she did not seem to hear them or to be alive to anything but just what was I was saying. It made me feel quite queer not to be answered, and when you tell anything sudden and strange to someone, you expect people will say something, whatever it is. Nobody but Sarah herself knew what happened in her room after she had run upstairs and locked her door. In fact, she scarcely herself remembered anything that she had walked up and down, saying over and over again to herself in a voice which did not seem her own. My papa's dead. My papa is dead. Once she stopped before Emily, who sat watching her from a chair and cried out wildly, Emily! Do you hear? Do you hear? Papa is dead. He is dead in India. 
thousands of miles away. When she came into Miss Minchin's sitting room in answer to her summons, her face was white and her eyes had dark rings round them. Her mouth was set as if it did not wish to reveal what she had suffered and was suffering. She did not look at least like the rose-coloured butterfly child who had flown from one of her treasures to the other in the decorated schoolroom. She looked instead a strange, desolate, almost grotesque little figure. She had put on, without Mariette's help, the cast-aside black velvet frock. It was too short and tight, and her slender legs looked long and thin, showing themselves from beneath the brief skirt. As she had not found a piece of black ribbon, her short, thick black hair tumbled loosely about her face and contrasted strongly with its pallor. She held Emily tightly in one arm, and Emily was swathed in a piece of black material. Put down your door, said Miss Minchin. What do you mean by bringing her here? No, Sir answered, I will not put her down. She is all I have. My papa gave her to me. She had always made Miss Minchin feel secretly uncomfortable, and she did so now. She did not speak with rudeness so much as with a cold steadiness with which Miss Minchin felt it difficult to cope, perhaps because she knew she was doing a heartless and inhuman thing. "'You will have no dolls in your future,' she said. "'You will have to work and improve yourself and make yourself useful.' Sarah kept her big, strange eyes fixed on her and said not a word. Everything will be different now, Miss Minchin went on. I suppose Miss Amelia has explained matters to you? Yes, answered Sarah. My papa is dead. He left me no money. I am quite poor. You are a beggar, said Miss Minchin, her temper rising at the recollection of what all this meant. It appears that you have no relations and no home and no one to take care of you. For a moment, the thin, pale little face twitched, but Sarah said nothing. What are you staring at? demanded Miss Mitchell sharply. Are you so stupid that you cannot understand? I tell you that you are quite alone in this world and have no one to do anything for you unless I choose to keep you here out of charity. I understand answered Sarah in a low tone, and there was a sound as if she had gulped something down which rose in her throat. I understand. That door, cried Miss Minchin, pointing to the splendid birthday gift seated near her. That ridiculous door with all her nonsensical extravagant things. I actually paid the bill for her. Sarah turned her head toward the chair. The last door, she said. The last door, and a little mournful voice had an odd sound. The last door indeed, said Miss Minchin, and she is mine, not yours. Everything you own is mine. Please take it away from me then, said Sarah. I do not want it. If she had cried and sobbed and seemed frightened, Miss Minchin might almost have had more patience with her. She was a woman who liked to domineer and feel her power. And as she looked at Sarah's pale, little, steadfast face and heard her proud little voice, she felt quite as if her might was being set at naught. Don't put on grand airs, 
she said. The time for that sort of thing is past. You are not a princess any longer. Your carriage and your pony will be sent away. Your maid will be dismissed. You will wear your oldest and plainest clothes. Your extravagant ones are no longer suited to your station. You are like Becky. You must work for your living. To her surprise, a faint gleam of light came on in the child's eyes, a shade of relief. I can work, she said. If I can work, it will not matter so much. What can I do? You can do anything that you are told, was this answer. You are a sharp child and pick up things readily. If you make yourself useful, I may let you stay here. You speak French well and you can help with the younger children. May I? exclaimed Sarah. Oh, please let me. I know I can teach them. I like them and they like me. Don't talk nonsense about people liking you, said Miss Minchin. You will have to do more than teach the little ones. You will run errands and help in the kitchen as well as in the schoolroom. If you don't please me, you will be sent away. Remember that. Now go. Sarah stood still just a moment looking at her. In her young soul, she was thinking deep and strange things. Then she turned to leave the room. Stop, said Miss Minchin. Don't you intend to thank me? Sarah paused. And all the deep, strange thoughts surged up in her breast. What for? she said. For my kindness to you, replied Miss Minchin. For my kindness in giving you a home. Sarah made two or three steps toward her. Then her thin little chest heaved up and down, and she spoke in a strange, unchildishly fierce way. You are not kind, she said. You are not kind, and it is not a home. And she had turned and run out of the room before Miss Minchin could stop her or do anything but stare after her with stony anger. She went up the stairs slowly, but panting for breath, and she held Emily tightly against her side. I wish she could talk, she said to herself. If she could speak, oh, she could speak. She meant to go to her room and lie down on the tiger skin with her cheek upon the great cat's head and look into the fire and think and think and think. But just before she reached the landing, Miss Amelia came out of the door and closed it behind her and stood before it looking nervous and awkward. The truth was that she felt secretly ashamed of the thing which she had been ordered to do. You... You are not a... You cannot go in there, she said. Not go in, exclaimed Sarah, and she fell back a pace. This is not a room now, Miss Amelia answered, reddening a little. Somehow all at once, Sarah understood. She realised that this was the beginning of the change Miss Minchin had spoken of. Where is my room? she asked, hoping very much that her voice did not shake. You are to sleep in the attic? Next to Becky. Sarah knew where it was. Becky had told her about it. She turned and mounted up two flights of stairs. The last one was narrow and covered with shabby strips of old carpet. She felt as if she were walking away and leaving far behind her the world in which that other child, who no longer seemed herself, had lived. This child, in her short, tight old frock, climbing the stairs to the attic, was quite a different creature. When she reached the attic door and opened it, her heart gave a dreary little thump. Then she shut the door and stood against it and looked about her. 
Yes. This is another world. The room had a slanting roof and was whitewashed. The whitewash was dingy and had fallen off in places. There was a rusty grate, an old iron bedstead, and a hard bed covered with a faded coverlet. Some pieces of furniture were much too worn to be used downstairs, and they had been sent up. Under the skylight in the roof, which showed nothing but an oblong piece of dull grey sky, there stood an old battered red footstool. Sarah went to it and sat down. She seldom cried. She did not cry now. She laid Emily across her knees and put her face down upon her and her arms and around her and sat there, her little black head resting on the black draperies, not saying one word, not making one sound. And as she sat in this silence there came a low tap at the door, such a low, humble one that she did not hear it at first, and indeed was not roused until the door was timidly pushed open in a poor... Tear-streamed face appeared, peeping round it. It was Becky's face, and Becky had been crying furtively for hours, and rubbing her eyes with a kitchen apron, and she looked strange indeed. "'Oh, Mace,' she said under her breath, "'might I? Would you allow me? Just to come in?' Sarah lifted her head and looked at her. She tried to begin a smile, and somehow she could not. Suddenly... And it was all through the loving mournfulness of Becky's streaming eyes. Her face looked more like a child's, not so much too old for her years. She held out her hand and gave a little sob. Oh, Becky, she said, I told you we were just the same. Only two little girls, just two little girls. You see how true it is? There's no difference now. I'm not a princess any more. Becky ran to her and caught her hand and hugged it to her breast, kneeling beside her and sobbing with love and pain. Yes, miss, you are, she cried, and her words were all broken. Whatsoever happens to you, whatsoever, you'd be a princess all the same and nothing could make you nothing different. Oh, goodness. That was chapter... <laughs> oh, that was chapter seven. Oh, man. Yeah, I wiped my snot on my, on my shirt. Oh, 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 oh. You guys, if you didn't catch this whole chapter, go back. <laughs> uh, dramatically, that's probably the most dramatic chapter I've ever read. Cute. That's not in tears. Um, especially the range. It wasn't all sad. It wasn't all angry. It wasn't all um, emotionless. That was cathartic. Yas. Um, oh man, these next chapters are going to be really hard to read. Oh, I don't, I, I don't want to say I hope you enjoyed, but, um, I hope it, I hope the performance was good for you. I hope, um, you're in the story, right? Oh my gosh, how funny. And I don't know, kind of as an aside, there's a part of me that 
in the performance, when it says the character cries, there's part of me that tries to cry, like like an actor. Um, and sometimes it's overwhelming sympathy for the real or not real characters involved. But usually it begins with a little bit of sympathy, and then it's like I, and like you care to know this, <laughs> but once I, I think hard about that sympathy, and then once I envision that sympathy, I do my best to like augment it, like almost like a dry sponge or dry something, like when it gets wet and just like that. Like I try to um, expand. And then as as the emotional kind of, you know, when you cry and you release um, those feelings, how it kind of tumbles out. Like if, if you don't allow the restraint, you don't restrain. Um, so as I feel the tumbling happen, as long as it is in character with what's happening, um, I let it tumble. Does that make sense? So like I could I could absolutely hold back tears if I wanted. But it's like a distinct um, acting choice that I'm making. Yeah. Anyway, that's random. I hope you enjoy. Man, that was such a good chapter. Oh. <sighs>